You're listening to Spirit Grows Pesach series. Taking you back 3,400 plus years ago, where a man named Jacob, the third of the forefathers, has actually 12 sons. He's got daughters. But the sons feature because they seem, to be, they seem to be extremely strong characters. They go on to become the fathers of the 12 tribes of the Jewish people. And we're going to begin our journey focusing on the son, Joseph. Yosef was actually a very, very special son to Jacob. Jacob had a number of wives, and one of them, Rachel, actually passed away when they were traveling before he actually finally set up home in what would later become Israel. In fact, she passed away and only left him two children, Joseph, her oldest son, and a baby, Benjamin. So Joseph always had a very special spot in his father's heart, being that he's this oldest son, this child who comes from a very, very uh, um, dear person to him. Rachel was, seems to have been the favorable wife in Jacob's life. Joseph's well known because he had that technicolored coat. He had that beautiful multicolored coat which his father actually had made for him. And that would be the beginning of a sibling rivalry between Joseph and his other 11 brothers. So let me take you to Joseph's early life. He's a teenager and he's not quite into the same things as the rest of his brothers. His brothers work on the estate the cattle, they look after the sheep, they look after the produce. Joseph is more a dreamer. A, he's slightly younger than a lot of them, and therefore not necessarily out there working with his older brothers. And so he sits in the fields, and he dreams, and he thinks large, and he's discovering his spirituality. And there seems to be a period in his life that he has two dreams that completely put him offside with the rest of his brothers. In one dream, he tells his brothers and his parents, his father, that he saw, um, he saw himself surrounded by stars and the sun and the moon, and the stars, the sun and the moon seem to have been prostrating, bowing, serving him, Joseph. When the brothers heard this dream, they automatically interpreted it in a negative way, and they said, Joseph, what you're dreaming basically is to one day rule us and that we, your 11 brothers, and your father and your mother will one day all serve you. What a disgrace. And besides being a disgrace, they don't want to think that their little brother's one day going to rule them. And they don't like that his dreams, which are, must be a reflection of his ambition, is actually that he'll one day command them. Sometime later... He comes and says, I had another fantastic dream. Obviously not picking up on the vibe that his family don't care about his dreams, especially when you hear what the next dream was. And in this dream, he says, I saw many, many stalks of wheat and they were bowing down towards me. And again, 11 bundles, etc., indicating his family. And again, the response, are you saying that you're going to rule over us? And this sets the stage for extreme negativity between the brother, Joseph, and the rest of the family. Some time passes, and the relationship doesn't improve. 
And Joseph starts reporting on what his brothers are doing because he disapproves of certain things that they're doing. They go against his values, go against spiritual values of the family, and he reports it to the father. And they make a decision that enough is enough. We're going to have to remove our brother. And literally, the Torah tells us that one day, they hatched a plan in which they would kill him. And in the desert, they actually tie him down. And as the discussion of killing is finally being concluded, there's a change of heart by some of the brothers. And they say, perhaps let's not kill our flesh and blood. Let's throw him in a pit and work out what to do with him. And very quickly, the suggestion is perhaps... Perhaps we should sell him off to a caravan of, of nomads. They can take him as a slave and do what they will with him. Now, this wasn't a completely evil plan because some brothers had the intention of actually saving him. By throwing, throwing him in a pit, there would have to be further discussion. They may actually throw him into a pit, which the Torah tells us was empty. It had no water or snakes in it, no scorpions in it which is a bit redundant because if it's empty, we know that there's nothing in it. But for that, I'm going to have to tell you and ask you to join me tomorrow because I'll explain that further tomorrow, what the deeper meaning is. The plan was perhaps while they're deliberating whether or not to kill him or sell him and the brothers are away, they might, a couple of the brothers had the intention of actually taking him out and releasing him into the wild. And at least then they won't be responsible for his death. But with haste, the brothers decide, the rest of the brothers decide they're going to sell him. And they do. They sell him to a group of Arab nomads that are heading towards Egypt. And I don't know what price they got for him, and I don't think they cared. But they held onto his colorful coat. They killed a goat. They poured its blood on the coat so that they could present the coat to their father and say, he was killed, and this is all we've got. And that's what happened. They presented to their father a coat soaked in goat's blood and said, this was Joseph's. Joseph has been killed. Completely unnerves Jacob. And we're going to leave this grieving father and 11 very guilty brothers. And we're going to begin following Joseph's journey. Joseph traveled to Egypt with this caravan. And very quickly, they headed off to the market and they sold him. It's interesting, the Torah describes what sort of character Joseph was just by who actually purchased him. His name was Potiphar. Potiphar was a very, very aristocratic member of society. He worked for Pharaoh. He seems to have worked in the royal courts. And later on in life, he goes on to become a priest within the royal courts. Potiphar puts Joseph to physical work, but quickly discovers that Joseph is more than just a strong boy he actually has an unbelievable head and quickly removes him from this work of physical labor and slowly but surely brings him into the family business. And it seems that over a period of time, Potiphar actually asks Joseph to take full control of his estate. And Potiphar and his slave Joseph become tight, extremely close, to the point that middle-aged uh, 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 medieval commentaries tell us that Potiphar trusted Joseph more than his own wife and children. Trusted Joseph like a son, like a partner, like a parent. Now, here's something interesting. Potiphar's wife has a crush on Joseph. 
He's young, he's handsome, he's strapping, he has beautiful hair, and she actually has a physical desire to be with him. And over a long period of time, over some years of him working in Potiphar's home and within the estate and within the offices, she's constantly hitting on him, constantly trying to entice him, constantly trying to seduce him. And Joseph always stands his ground, knows his place, knows that he is his boss's slave ultimately, and he can't. It wouldn't be right. She's a married woman. It's not available. Now, I'll just point out here, the reason why Potiphar's wife was so aggressive was because she had a message which she had interpreted from reading of the stars, from an astrological reading, that one day there would be descendants from her and Joseph. And we'll explore that further maybe later on in the series, because she was accurate, because Joseph would one day marry her daughter, but she never envisaged that Joseph would marry his, her daughter, and she just took it on herself to be the one to have children with Joseph. That doesn't make it right, but it helps explain this deeper passion and the, and the inability for her to actually quell her lust for Joseph. This goes on for months, possibly even longer, years, until one Egyptian festival, when the whole family is out, the Torah tells us that Potiphar's wife feigned illness. She was sick. At least that's what the family thought. And once they were left, and Joseph never took part as a slave in any Egyptian ritual, she and Joseph are home alone, and she grabs him, and she tears his clothing, and begs him to please, please, please sleep with her. And in this moment, she actually has doled herself up. She has done her best to seduce him. And it's interesting because commentaries argue, would Joseph at that moment have slipped? He was about to. But something happened. He had a vision. And what that vision was, we know, was a vision of his father. And I'll explore that later in the series as to why this vision was so powerful and what sort of vision did he have. But in that moment, Joseph slipped out of his clothing and ran into the street. Immediately, Potiphar's wife says, how's this going to look? And she concocts a story so that as soon as everyone comes home, she yells, she has been attacked, Joseph has threatened to rape her, and look, I have his coat in his rage. He just stripped down and he was going to... And she's won. It's not about whether she could be proven or disproven. It's that the master's wife says the slave attacked her. In an Egyptian kangaroo court, there is no case. Interestingly, the commentaries tell us Potiphar knew full well what his wife was up to. But in Egyptian society, how could you actually prosecute the wife for trying to seduce a slave? Surely the slave tried to rape the boss's wife. And so, Potiphar is sent, and so Joseph is sentenced to death and is thrown into prison. In prison, Joseph actually meets a number of interesting characters. One of them is a former butler who seems to have worked in one of Pharaoh's palaces. The other was a royal baker. And one day, he chances upon them, and they both have long faces. And he says, oh, why the long face? And one shares a story where he had baskets on his head filled with uh, bread, 
and birds started pecking at it. And the other shares a story that he was pouring and there was, a, there was a fly in the wine, etc. And there's fascinating dreams that they've had and they share it with Joseph. And Joseph says, I'll tell you what the dreams mean because I've got nothing else to do. And he tells the baker, your dream means that you will never be found innocent. You will never be cleared and you will be killed for your crime. But you, butler, Pharaoh is going to forgive you and you'll be pardoned and you'll be restored to your original position. And in biblical terms, lo and behold, that's what came to pass. The baker was killed, the butler was freed. And on the butler's way out of prison, Joseph said, remember me. When you're back in that position, remember me and get me the hell out of here. And it came to pass and the butler forgot about Joseph. So some years pass. Joseph has now been in prison for more than seven years and he's got this additional time for asking the butler who sentenced this. This seems to have been a decree from heaven, an influence on the court system that an additional two years for Joseph putting his faith in a butler instead of putting his faith in the greater being, in the creator, the one of all. The one who is able to control and change with miracle. And because of the faith in man and not in the true God, in Hashem, Joseph, who is expected in a spiritual moment to be higher than this, fails. And therefore, the Torah seems to indicate an extra two years is added to his sentence. Pharaoh has a shocking dream some years later. And then another shocking dream. And these are the two famous dreams. In one, he saw seven skinny cows and seven fat cows come out of the Nile River. And he saw the seven skinny cows consume the seven fat cows, which was in its own right probably quite disturbing, but the seven skinny cows put on no weight. And then he has a further dream of seven ears of corn, and which, are, which are skinny and almost dead, and then seven ears of corn, which are fat, healthy. And he sees that the seven skinny ears somehow consume the seven healthy ears, and nothing happens. They remain as thin, as free of nutrition, as almost dead as before. And these dreams actually freak Pharaoh out. They completely disturb him. What does this really mean? And he calls for his astrologers and he calls for his advisors and everyone's giving him their own, their own peace and is not happy. Some say you're going to have seven daughters and they're all going to die and others have all sorts of interpretations until the butler says, look, I can't interpret, but there's a guy in your prison who interpreted my dream and told me I'd go free and that your royal baker would actually be killed. And that came to pass. So Pharaoh says, summon him. What's his name? And Joseph is brought to Pharaoh and he hears the dreams. And Joseph says, I'll tell you what I think the dreams mean. You're going to have seven very, very good years of food. Egypt is going to have an abundance of water and growth. But then you'll have seven years of famine. And here's my two cents, says Joseph. I'd start preparing now. And Pharaoh says, I like that. I like what this man has to say. It fits in with what happened. And he says, you, Joseph you are going to head up this operation of storing grain and food so that Egypt survives these seven years of famine. Immediately, Joseph is removed from prison and Egypt starts building a wealth under Joseph. And within a couple of years, he is not only the head of the finance ministry and food ministry, but he has actually become a deputy to Pharaoh. He is the second most powerful man in the kingdom, in the empire. 
As the years go on, Joseph has Egypt build granaries, fantastic storehouses, and everyone must contribute, and all farm, all farm collections are made, and food is put into storage and preservation uh, um, until the years of famine come. And as the years of, of, of plenty come to an end, and the years of famine begin, Joseph begins the distribution process. But this famine, this famine doesn't just actually affect Egypt, it actually affects the wider Mesopotamian area of this world. Let's go back to the brothers. Jacob is sitting in the land of Canaan. He's living in what would later become Israel. And the famine is approaching. And he tells his sons, go to Egypt and buy grain. Bring it back. And so the brothers, 10 of them, leaving their baby brother Benjamin behind, because Benjamin is Joseph's little brother, the sole remaining son from Rachel, from Rachel, they go off to Egypt. Now, I'd like to put into context, who was Jacob? We know that the forefathers had an immense amount of wealth. The fact that the Torah records that they went to war with other kings means they weren't just some schnook. You don't go to war against the king unless you yourself are actually an extremely powerful person. So if Jacob is a powerful person with his own mini empire, with his own treasure, with his own estate, then the sons must be princes. So when they actually arrive in Egypt, it makes sense the way the Torah reports that immediately a message is sent to the royal houses that the ten sons have arrived. And Joseph, upon hearing that ten, son, ten princes that come from Canaan have come to Egypt, has them arrested. And this will now be the beginning of a journey in which the brothers will be tested by Joseph. He won't be looking for uh, uh, revenge. He just wants to know one thing. Do they or do they not regret what they've done to him? And he puts them through a series of tests. The brothers don't know Joseph is still alive. They know that a couple decades ago, they sold him into slavery. They don't know what happened beyond that. The chances of a slave surviving were very thin, but at least they don't have the direct blood on their hands. They've never heard back from him. He's never come home. So they assume he's gone. So they would never think that the man that they are about to appear before is their brother. He was a young teenager when they got rid of him. He is now in his 30s. He's mature. He's got facial hair. He's lived life in a prison. He's aged. They have no reason to suspect there's no familiarity with this full-grown adult. And the moment of trepidation, that moment of fear of being called into the office of one of the most powerful people of Egypt, definitely doesn't allow them to have objective, clear thinking. They're just worried about their life. Why have they been arrested? Why have they been summoned? There is no formal hello. They are met in a back room. And Joseph begins quizzing them. Who are you? Where do you come from? Why are you here? And they're just mumbling, trying to get the answers. We're, we're here because... Uh, and he challenged them, but there's more family. And they're bewildered. How does he know about this extra family? And they say, well, we had a brother, but he's dead. And he's challenged them and he's completely put them offside. They cannot think straight. Eventually says, no problem, we'll sell you the grain. And then there's a process of him selling the grain and then them traveling back and then having come back. And then when they, he, he sends them back and he says, don't worry, but you must bring your little brother if you want more. 
I demand of it. I will arrest one of you if you don't leave one of, if you don't bring your little brother. I'd like to meet him. Eventually they go back. They go back home. One of the brothers are left behind and they tell their father, Jacob, Jacob, or father, we need to take Benjamin or else we're not going to have the whole family here. We don't know what's going on in Egypt, but this man knows all. He is an extremely powerful prophet. He seems to know everything about us. He seems to know everything about everything. And most of all, he speaks Hebrew, a language that was not common in Egypt at all. And they don't know for sure that he spoke Hebrew, but the fact is whenever they spoke to each other, it was as if he understood what they were saying. And therefore the assumption that this unbelievable genius, this spiritualist, this deputy head to Pharaoh is someone that they fear. uh, Jacob is so reluctant. He doesn't want to let another son go. Will he ever see him again? His wife died early. Her son, according to him, has died early. And now, his only other son from this wife. But reluctantly, he lets Benjamin go. They return back to Egypt to buy more grain and to free their brother. And now, Joseph welcomes them, and there's further challenge, and there's more threats, and he's just discovering the regret, the regret that they have that they lost their brother It's expressed to him. He can see it in their eyes. He can see it in how they blame themselves that perhaps this is happening to us because of what we did to Yosef. And he sends them back on their way filled with gold and grain and sends them back home, but plants a little gold goblet in their cup, a little gold goblet in Benjamin's sack and has his guards chase them down and says, you stole my magic goblet and immediately has them arrested. Benjamin is separated from the rest of the brothers and according to the commentaries, Joseph actually reveals himself to the brothers, to to Benjamin in private. Meanwhile, the brothers are now petrified. He's separated Benjamin. Who knows what's going to happen? How did this cup end up? Who was stupid enough to steal something from one of the most powerful people in the world? What's going on? And there's panic. Joseph summons them and he's about to well, seemingly yell at them, have them executed. But in this moment, he can see how meek and small they are. He can see how much regret there is. And he doesn't want to torture them. And at this point, he yells for every Egyptian in the room to leave. And once everyone has left the room, he reveals himself. And he says, brothers, it's me, Joseph. Is my father still alive? And when they confirm that he is, he says, please go back and bring him here. And they go back and they tell Jacob, Joseph is alive some 20 plus years later. And he comes, he comes to Egypt and they move their, their family over. And Joseph and Pharaoh welcome them and ask them to live in the fertile lands of Goshen. They age. Jacob dies. He receives a state funeral. And the brothers grow old, and they have their families, and Joseph remains in power in Egypt.
and eventually the brothers all 